Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. As we think about our day, we a day that's advanced in technology from top-notch entertainment to online shopping and online banking to even webinars and online schooling right at our fingertips. I mean, churches these days, one of the best things that they do is online giving. I mean, to online, I mean, Bible studies. To, I mean, they do online everything. It seems as though that, I mean, we live in a day that most generations before us have only dreamt about. But as we think about it, not only so, even put aside from technology, we find that we live in a day of comfort. From fast food to Amazon Prime now that allows you to receive items within hours of ordering them. I mean, in many ways, we live in an amazing day. I mean, days that people have only thought about would be possible is possible today. However, in spite of all the comforts and luxuries that we do get to enjoy in life, it's no secret that we live in a day where more people are unsatisfied and unhappy about their lives than ever before. And while we do have more possessions and parks than our previous generations, we often find that our level of joy has decreased rather than to have increased with these incentives in life. I read an article on Forbes magazine a few uh, years ago, and according to this survey that was taken uh, uh, regarding 30,000 employees worldwide, it showed that between 28% to all the way to 56% of employees, depending on the country worldwide, wanted to leave their jobs for a different opportunity if it opened up. Then again, in in this survey done, just in the United States alone, 32% said they wanted to do something else. And 65% said that they were somewhat or totally unsatisfied with their current jobs. But, you know, this isn't just a trend in the workforce either. Even among students, they say that 80% of college students end up changing their major at least once. And on average, students change their majors at least three times over the course of their college career. So in many ways, we even put aside from these statistics, one thing that we can see is the fact that a lot of people live unsatisfied with how their lives are right now. And even with their gadgets and spending sprees, even with the quick service culture that's evolved in our day, we find that those things have not brought satisfaction to our culture, to our generation. And while this may, be defi- while this may not define all of us, for some of us sitting in this room today, we're unsatisfied. You know, living, uh, uh, you know, waiting for something to pop up that might change something. That might bring about a, a difference that we've always wanted. However, when we look to the Bible, we find that God has already given us that something to bring about that change. Now, I love this verse in Psalm 28, 7. The Bible says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusteth in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoiceth and in my song will I praise You see, the reason that we can have joy and satisfaction this morning is not based upon what we have, and it's not based upon what we possess. It's not based upon what we get to do for a living, but I believe it's the result of a clear relationship with Jesus Christ. However, we find that too often, even as believers, even as Christians, even as people who claim to believe the Bible, our our level of joy or the amount of satisfaction that we feel can heavily depend upon our circumstances and our surroundings. As you know, I have a two-year-old son. If you don't know who he is, he's probably the one that's running around. You'll see him. You'll see. You'll, you can't miss him. He'll run around, grab a donut. If he can't grab it, he'll look at you with those puppy eyes until you give him a donut, and then he'll run off. I have a two-year-old son who, you know, who's mostly happy, and I'll explain why I say mostly. Lately, he's fallen in love with dinosaurs. He absolutely loves them, and you could tell. 
by all the wars he did this morning as well. And, and in his last visit to New Jersey, where I'm from and where I'm originally from, his aunt gave him a collection of dinosaur toy figures. You can imagine a lot of kids have them, right? And he has a whole figure. Every morning, one of, the, one of the things that he does, he wakes up, he takes out all the, he has a dinosaur box, right? It's called a dinosaur box. I call it a dinosaur box. And he takes everything out, ranging from this big all the way to tiny ones that he wanted from one of those, you know, one of those things that you could win, and he lines it up straight. I mean, he loves them. He makes sure that he has every single one of them. And if one is missing, he goes around making sure that he finds that one that is missing. I mean, he, he loves dinosaurs in many ways. But a few, you know, four months ago, we went to see a dinosaur exhibit and, uh, down in OC. And after the exhibit, we went into the gift shop. Parents, that's a big mistake. Never going to the gift shop. If, you, if your kid had a great exhibit, go home with that great feeling, right? Never going to the gift shop. But, I mean, the way this exhibit was made was that it kind of led into the gift shop, right? These people are smart. They know what they're doing. And, and you know, we went into the gift shop. And, and in this gift shop, they had a T-Rex that was about three feet tall and four feet wide. He was in love. After he saw it, and to top it off, that T-Rex would roar. Why would they make such a thing, right? I mean, come on now, right? I mean, after looking at it, the first thing, Moses was going, wow. I was thinking, that must be expensive. Moses, stay, this, stay over here. You know, don't, don't go close. Not that it was dangerous. All I was thinking was, that thing must be expensive. It roared loud. It roared loud. And, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, compared to what seemed like tiny, minute toy figures, I mean, this thing was a dream. However, I wasn't, as a dad, I really wasn't up to bringing a dinosaur, a giant dinosaur home with us. And as soon as he realized that, the, that this thing that he loved, that he adored, that he was dreaming about wasn't co- coming home with him, he was no longer happy, as you can guess. And we tried to tempt him with the dinosaurs that he loved. I mean, it, it's dinosaurs that he would bathe with. He would tuck them in at night. I mean, he would, I mean, do everything with them. I mean, there's a few in our car right now even. I mean, he loves these dinosaurs, but he didn't want to even look at them. All of a sudden, I mean, the dinosaurs that he loved so much, that he once adored, no longer brought him the joy that they used to. And, you know, often in our lives as well, we find that our level of satisfaction and joy is not based upon what we have or what we don't have, but it's often based upon what we perceive about them. What we perceive about them. You see, somebody that has a lot could look at all that he has and say, I have nothing. And again, somebody that has barely nothing could look at what they have and say, I have everything. And a lot of times in life, we find that to be the truth. You know, what we have or don't have is not based upon what you really possess, but a lot of times it's based upon our perception. And as we go back back to our text, we find that the Apostle Paul confronting the Corinthian church for not standing by him. However, he comes to the conclusion at the end, as he says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. You see, what Paul was saying was this. He understood that his commitment and love towards the Corinthian church was not based upon what he would receive from them in return. It wasn't about them loving him. It wasn't about the recognition that he would receive. It wasn't about all the things that he he would get returned in, in serving this church so faithfully. But he was willing to find satisfaction and joy in living and doing what God had called him to do, which was to simply love these people. He had chosen to change his perception. And I wonder this morning, how's our level of joy and satisfaction? Do we live with joy and satisfaction or has our lives become a burden filled with lists of things that we still need to accomplish in order to be satisfied? 
How about this? As we look at our church this morning, do we find all the things that we could do better and be more satisfied in? Or do we look at our church and say, man, I'm so glad God brought me to this church. You know, I love, I mean, Brother Brooks, he's not here this morning. He went to see his grandkid, a grandchild that was recently born. And, you know, I love talking to him. Every time I talk to him, he, he just kind of looks at me, smiles, and says, man, you have a great church, don't you? And tell you the truth, whatever I was thinking before, it changes all of a sudden. It's like, yes, we do. You know what I mean? Even if I was thinking about, man, where are all the people? Even if I was thinking about, what a hot day. What happened to our AC? All I could say is, you're right. We do have a great church. I mean, what do you say to that, right? I mean, he comes and says, man, we have a great church. So glad we get to worship. You know, uh, you know we get to have a multicultural worship. Man, this is what heaven's going to be like. And a lot of times, I mean, a lot of times it's about the perception, not about the facts that we think we see. In our lives. So this morning, let's take a moment to look at three places that I find gives us true satisfaction. First of all, I find here, find satisfaction in God's provision. If you look at Second uh, Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, the Bible says this, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. You see the word gladly in this verse carries the meaning of feeling joy or pleasure, delighted or pleased. And it's a word that's often used to express a consent and even delight. However, when you think about the verses and the descriptions that we just read, that's the last thing that this verse seems to express. Paul talks about gladly embracing infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, and even distresses. I mean, all of these things are things that we'd rather be without. Then to top it off, he admits that these are things that he'd rather be without. Because the reason is this, because it makes him weak. How many of us likes being, you know, like being weak? Right? None of us, right? I mean, you know, I, mean, I love the feeling. As a, you know, I haven't I've been married too long. I have two kids, but we had kids right away. Uh, we, uh, you know, my wife and I have been married for three years, and make sure I say the right number, or else the calculation doesn't work, right? I mean, we've been married three years, uh, three years, almost, yeah, three. Anyhow, I should have prepared this, okay? But we've been married about, about, uh, about is never good, right? Somebody told me this. About, when you, when you talk about marriage, never say about, right? That's never good. We've been married uh, three and a half years or so, or so, take us or so, uh, three and a half years, and, um, you know, one of the best feelings for a husband, for boyfriends, for, you know, guy friends, it's all the same probably, is when my wife says, honey, can you open this? Right? It's like, yeah, this is what I'm for, you know? Ugh. But the worst feeling you get is when you can't open it, right? It's like super tight. Like, you're like, wow, this isn't working out for me, right? But, if, you know, for any guy, what they would do is they would do everything with, even if you sprain your ankle, right? You would do everything within your power to open up that jar. Because we like that feeling, men, right? Men like that feeling of, you know, like, ah, right? I could, I, I'll protect you. I got you, right? Like, ah, right? We like that feeling. I like that feeling. Maybe it's not all of you. I like that feeling, right? I like that, you know? But the thing is this. Hey, Paul was saying was this. Hey, what this is making me feel is it makes me feel weak. It makes me feel helpless. It makes me feel as though that I can't accomplish it. I can't do it. And as we think about it, how can you rejoice about these things? However, as we go back to the text, what Paul was saying was that it was possible because of what he would receive in return. He says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
He was saying, if this is what it took for God to work in a real way in my life, then let me be weak. Let me endure these difficulties. Let me go through these trials. Let me endure infirmities and and persecutions and necessities. Let me go through these things if I could have the power of God upon my life. You see, there was a clear plan and a will that God had upon Paul's life. It did include infirmities at times. It did include reproaches. There were persecutions. There were distresses. It did weaken him at times. But Paul was saying, if me being weak is what it took for God to work in a real way in my life, then it was worth it. So be it. You know, someone once said this, joy is the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts, announcing that the king is in residence today. And folks, can I remind you that the joy within our hearts, that the satisfaction that we get to feel, enjoy, and endure is because of Jesus Christ in our hearts, not because of our circumstances, not because somebody did something for us today, not because something went in our favor, but it's because Jesus Christ reigns within our hearts. And I believe joy and satisfaction come from accepting what God has allowed to be a part of our lives in both the good and the bad. Find satisfaction in God's provision because he knows what we need and don't need in our lives. You know, God knows what he's doing with our lives. See, if we're not careful, we can have joy and satisfaction when things are going well and blessings are pouring into our lives, but lose the joy when things turn sour and when when things aren't as pleasant as we like for them to be. You know, when I think about King Saul, I, I see him as somebody that was controlled heavily by his emotions. I mean, King Saul, I know in many ways we think about him negatively, and there's clear reason for that. I mean, in many ways he tried to kill you know, the man who was called the man after God's own heart, that's, that's pretty big, right? That's a biggie right there. And in many ways, I mean, it, towards the end of his life, it was all about revenge, killing. And, and, you know, in many ways, it was all about him and not about God. But one thing that we understand about Saul is this, that King Saul was this, that when he started off, the Bible describes him as being somebody that was, that, that, that was humble and chosen of the Lord. In many ways, I understand that the people chose Saul. But as the people brought King Saul to God, God approved him, which meant that Saul was approved of God. Saul was somebody that was good enough to be king. But one thing that we find about Saul is that he was also somebody that simply could not control his emotions. If you think back to the time when, uh, when, when um, David is called and he, he defeats Goliath, we find that, you know, I mean, Saul wanted to give David everything. His own daughter, everything he needed, crowns, and I mean, every possession that he would need. He says, this is yours. You took away my biggest problem, you could have it all. But we find that as soon as he realizes that David was anointed as the next king, he grabs a spear. He wants him dead. He wants nothing to do with him. In a matter of moments, his emotion is swayed. And we find that while King Saul could have done great things for God, we find that it ends up doing nothing because he was simply controlled by his emotions. Don't let happiness simply be about this year, this month, this week, today, how you're feeling, what your circumstances are like, and and what's going on in your life this moment. You know, one of the best things that I learned at Bible college, of course, Greek was great, and, you know, and... uh, Doctrines were great. All those things were great. But uh, one, one of the great uh, pract- personal practices for my Christian life that I learned at Bible college was this. Never make a decision when you're discouraged. And I practice that today. Whenever I'm feeling, oh, man, I can't do this. Forget it. 
whenever I'm trying to organize an event, and I think, man, I should just forget about this event. You know, things aren't turning right. I mean, something's being all mixed up. Forget about it. Let's forget about it. A lot of times I think in my mind, no, this is, you know, I don't want to decide with my emotions. Let's take a week. And a lot of times during that week, I find God showing me ways to do it right. God showing me why he had given me this difficulty in the first place. He shows me what the issue was that I need to deal with in the first place. And in many ways, we find that, you know, while we give it time and let God do the work, that God, you know, God restores our emotions. He restores happiness and joy within our hearts once again. Find joy and satisfaction in your relationship with Christ, who gave his own life to provide a way for us to be saved from our sins. Find satisfaction in our relationship with him. Not simply about outward circumstances that change all the time. But secondly, I find here, find satisfaction in God's service. If you look to your Bibles at verse 11, the Bible says this, I am become a fool in glory. What Paul was saying was this, you know, I've made myself foolish by bragging about myself, by talking about all the things that I've done. And you have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you, For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostle, though I be nothing. So in many ways, as you look at this text, one thing that we find is that Paul was wrapped up in emotion. He was thinking in my mind, why do I have to defend myself? I mean, in many ways, I've studied the scriptures. I mean, you know, if there was an apostle better than me, man, I'm the best of the apostles. I know the Bible. God has used me. I've seen God himself. I've been used in in mighty ways to reach cities for Christ. I've done amazing things for God. and, And yet I'm sitting here defending my apostleship. I'm defending why I deserve to preach Christ, why I deserve to do this. Paul was wrapped up in his emotions. And the devil had gotten a hold of him. But at the end, he understood that all of his accomplishments meant nothing without God. So he concludes with the very words, though I be nothing. Though I be nothing. See, as this group of believers were questioning Paul, he had to defend himself by explaining why he was worthy to preach Christ to them. But ultimately, as he explains, it wasn't about his resume. It wasn't about his accomplishments, but all the things that he did was simply so that he could live for Christ, so that he could represent Jesus Christ in the right way. You see, to Paul, his ultimate purpose in life was to live for the one who died for him. And friends, could I remind you this morning, I mean, you know, as the world does, I mean, we, you know, we can live for money and the next big promotion. You know, we can live for fame and recognition. We can live for, you know, enjoyment and the luxuries that the world and this culture has to offer. However, keep in mind that true satisfaction only comes from living for Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And as we look at the scriptures, out of the many judges that God arose in the Old Testament, Samson was definitely, I believe, the judge with the most you know, I mean, physical specimens. In many ways, he was given super strength. I mean, the Bible records that in one account, he would kill a thousand men with only the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, he was given, he was equipped to be the man of God. In many ways, Samson was meant to live for God. However, with this messy personal life, although he was used of God, we find that he never reached his full potential. I mean, having gone from one issue to another, Samson possessed all the necessary components of someone that could have done great and something great for God. But the Bible says this about him, Judges 16.30. I think there's a slide for this. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. 
And what this verse is saying is this, that Samson accomplished more dead than alive. You know, isn't that a sad legacy for a man of God? And as we think about uh, the Bible recording, uh, you know, different accounts of different heroes throughout the scriptures, we find Moses. When we think about Moses, we think about him leading God's people through the wilderness, splitting the Red Sea. We think about Noah building that great ark and and restoring uh, mankind and and restoring humanity once again. We think about John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus Christ. He didn't have a lot of things. He didn't possess a lot of things. But with his life, with the few things that he did have, he preached Christ. But Samson, in many ways, was a superhuman. He had the strength to dominate and to do amazing things for God. Yet regarding him, the Bible says that in his death, he did more than in his life. And I wonder this morning as we think about us, about our lives, about our Christian lives, friends, if there is satisfaction in living for Christ, may it be said of us that he did more in his life for Christ than anyone before. He did more in his life than anyone before. Find satisfaction in God's service. That was the very reason we were saved, so that we could live for the one who died for us. Who died for us. Remember, um, at Bible college, um, hearing different stories. As you know, uh, Brother Paul Choi, pastor of Hillcrest uh, uh, Baptist Church uh, in Riverside, uh, he came out of this church. He was a youth pastor here for many years. And and I remember uh, when I first went to Bible college, uh, hearing uh, Brother Paul's testimony. And he gave the account of how he was, you know, in, you know, in business, he was making all this money, but he simply found no satisfaction. And in the brink of that moment, God spoke to his heart, and as he followed the teenagers to a youth conference, to the preaching of God's word, that he, God would speak to, speak to his heart and, and miraculously call him to the ministry. And I remember Brother Jimmy giving his story, our pastor, uh, about how, uh, you know, he got into Otis. He was studying fine art, and he was studying. But in the midst of it all, he realized that, man, I wanted to live my life for God. I mean, I could draw, and I could live for myself. I could, you know, who knows how the career will go, maybe good, maybe bad. I don't know. But all I know is that I want to live for God. But I remember when I surrendered to Christ, all I said was, God. I remember kneeling before God after hearing a preaching. All I said was, God, if I could clean out the trash in the church, let it be. Not fancy at all, you know. I surrendered to collect trash, right? People are going to come up to me now and give me the trash, right? Josh, you've got to collect trash now. It's your time. It wasn't fancy. It wasn't a miraculous thing where I had to give up houses and cars to live for Christ. No, I had nothing, man. All I had was a Nissan Xterra. Fill it up with like 50 bucks. I needed to get rid of that. Bad decision. Don't get me something there. But I mean, in many ways, I mean, you know, I didn't give up much. Yes, I mean, I, I was in the midst of studying. I was in the midst of going to business school and different things that I wanted to do for my life. But it was just an ordinary life. But one thing I realized is this. That was the best decision I ever made in my life. Through it, I've seen teenagers saved. Through it, I, I've seen children uh, change miraculously. I've seen families restored. Through it, I've seen people who are, uh, you know, gangsters turn to God and become Christ followers. I've seen people who would have never walked inside a church be discipled and and now bring their homes, I mean, their entire families to church. And that was the best decision I ever made. As a businessman, I would have never done that. 
as a different occupation, I would have never experienced any of it. And I realized that living for Christ, living for God, gave me the most satisfaction. Lastly, is this, find satisfaction in God's love. Find satisfaction in God's love. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, uh, up here on the slide, the Bible says this, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. You see, although Paul was preaching to a crowd that didn't seem to believe in him completely, he expresses his love for them because true satisfaction comes from understanding God's love. Now, there's a poster in the fellowship hall or maybe in the hot room there or uh, that Mrs. Brooks uses when she teaches the children in the morning. And the poster reads joy. And it reads joy, acrostics, okay, Jesus, others, and you. And what this poster means is this, that the best way to have joy in your life is to put Jesus first, then others, then about you. But a lot of times it's very easy for us to flip it around. I won't try to pronounce it doesn't quite work. We put ourselves first, then others, and then Jesus. And a lot of times, as we mix up that order, we find joy slipping away from our lives, and we find joy often comes when we put Jesus first and others, then ourselves. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus says, Jesus saith unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So from this passage, we understand that we're not supposed to only love those who are lovable and who are agreeable with us, but rather it's commanded that we love everyone. I used to, uh, before, I'm not sure, some of you may know this, but before I came on staff here three years ago, I've been here three years now, uh, the age of my kids, okay, but I've been here three years now, and uh, before I came, I used to, uh, when I was at Bible college, I would drive down in the weekends for a year, and I, I, I was in charge of the bus ministry, and during that time, I helped in the youth ministry, and, and I would sit under Brother Paul's preaching. If you ever heard Brother Paul, he's a great preacher, uh, you know, I love hearing him preach, and uh, I always get a lot from him, but I remember one time, he was preaching about friends, and, and something he said to this, I think this was at least like seven years ago, but, you know, it stuck to my mind. He says, you know, you know, you know, you know, you, you know, okay, he said, you know, you're friends with who you choose to be friends with. And what he was saying was this, you know, being a friend to somebody is not an agreement between two people like a contract. It simply means that if I decide that I'm going to love you and you're going to be my friend, in my mind, to me, you're my friend and I'm going to love you. You see? And in my mind, it, it was just revolutionary. I was thinking in my mind, whoa. You know, I always thought in my mind, you know, friendships were agreeable. You know, it's like, you're friends. Yeah, you, yeah, all right. Yeah, we're friends now, you know. And it kind of, you know, if you think about it, kind of childish. But, you know, in my mind, I always thought, you know, friends were supposed to be agreeable. Both people are supposed to say, you're my friend, you're my friend. Agreed, we're friends, you know. It's kind of weird. But in many ways, but when I heard that, I thought in my mind, how true. Your friendship's not about, you know, I mean, I mean, friendship's not about both sides agreeing. It's not a contract. It's not an agreement. Friendship is a choice. Now, no matter what Brother Joe might think about me, if I decide Brother Joe's going to be my friend, I'm going to love him. No matter what he does, I'm going to love him, and he's going to be my friend. You see, it's a personal decision. It's not about, I mean, it's not about, but I, but I don't know. You know, I don't know that thing he did to me. You know, I don't know. You know, he, you know yesterday that 
Breakfast burrito looked pretty good, you know, you didn't ask me, you know, or whatever it might be. I mean, you know, that doesn't matter. Because choosing to love somebody is a choice that we make. It's that being a friend to somebody is a choice that we make. And as the Bible says, thou shalt love. What God is saying is this, make the choice to love. You know that one of the prayers that I always pray, uh, you know, throughout the week is this, God, help me to love my teenagers more as a youth pastor. And it's not because I, I hate them and it's hard to love them. That's not the reason, okay? Because one thing that I learned is this, the more I love them, the more I'll sacrifice for them. The more I love them, the more I'll go out of my way to care for them and, and take care of their needs and, and to make sure they need, they get what they need. Because love is a choice. Love is a choice. You know, we decide to love. And our love for Jesus Christ is expressed in loving others. If you go to John 21, it tells the interaction between Jesus and Peter. I think the verse is up here. And in verse 15, the Bible says this. When they, die, when they have died, Jesus said unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. However, we live in a culture that's often lopsided when it comes to the principle of love. We're prone to only loving those who are good to us. You know, who have received our favor and who have connected with us. I love you if you love me. You know, if we say I love you to somebody, and not between a husband and wife, okay? If we say I love you to somebody, we expect to hear I love you too. Okay? Between a husband and wife, okay, you should, okay, right? But, I mean, it naturally, between human relations, that's what we expect because in many ways, we feel as though that love needs to be double-sided. Comes, it needs to come from both ends. However, when we look at the scriptures, the examples are clear. Moses lived his life to love and serve others in the wilderness who complained for 40 years. Noah would preach to the wicked generation of his day and love and serve them by building the ark, though none of them got on board. Paul loved and served many as he would minister to build and encourage many people in different churches, although it was often neglected. Jesus loved and served all of humanity when he gave his life to die on the cross to wash away our sins, though many may not claim him as their Lord. And when we look through the history of mankind, the answer is clear once again. People, I mean, like Mother Teresa, are famous and respected because they were willing to leave the comforts of their home to love and serve the helpless and the poor. Missionary David Livingston, who would love and serve the continent of Africa where he would die, and he, you, know, he, you, know, he, you know, all throughout his life, it was about loving those people. Missionary Hudson Taylor labored for years translating and praying over the people of China whom he loved. And these were men and women who were different in personalities and even beliefs to a certain point. But what united them is the fact that they were all willing to love and serve others. A right response to God's love for us is to love others. And I believe a right response to God's love for us is to love and to serve others. You know, I have a habit of writing down quotes or statements um, in, in my Bible, uh, in my preaching Bible, you know, when I hear preaching and different things like that. And that's why I have to change it. It got too, like, tagged up. And I was like, oh, this is kind of messed up. But one of the things that I, you know, one of the quotes that have encouraged me throughout the years is this. And a preacher, as he was preaching, said these words, you go on because there's a person who needs that joy you have. 
Let me say it one more time, okay? You go on because there's a person who needs that joy you have. And I purposely wrote those words inside my Bible because I know myself. I'm calculative. I'm constantly thinking about and reanalyzing different things in my life, and I wanted to make sure that I remind myself that there's a reason not to quit. There's a reason that I I need to continue on with joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. You know, what if I were to tell you this morning that I'm going to stop teaching teenagers? You know, they never seem to listen anyhow. They never seem interested anyhow. Some of you, hopefully, would say, but Josh, that's not true. They love you, right? I mean, in many ways, you know, and it would be true. But the fact of the matter is this, as an emotional person seeing it, to me, that would be true. They don't care about me, right? It might not be true, but in my mind it is, because I'm thinking it. To me, that's a a reality. No matter uh, the validity of it, it, no matter how true or false it might be, in my mind it would be true because I'm consumed by by, by that thought. But when our minds are exposed to such negativity, it's difficult to think about anything else, isn't it? And likewise, we often find people refusing to love others based on thoughts that are untrue and placed into our minds by the devil, but we believe it because of our emotions. Man, that brother must not like me that much. You know, man, that sister looked at me a little weird. Man, pastor, he didn't shake my hand today. Man, pastor shook hand, left-handed. Don't know what that means, but you know. And in many ways, we start analyzing, and we start calculating, and we start putting meaning into things that mean absolutely nothing, and the devil works it, uses it to turn us away from being faithful, away from being loving, and away from serving as God had wanted us to do. And friends, can I remind you this morning, you go on, because there's a person who needs that joy you have. By the way, this joy is not based upon us because I don't know about you, but in my life, circumstances change all the time. There are reasons to be happy, then there are reasons to be sad. There are reasons to rejoice, and then there are times where there are reasons to be frustrated. Be satisfied and find joy in the fact that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It changes not. True satisfaction is based upon him who changes not, who knows all things, and by the way, who controls all things. So this morning, I wonder, how's your level of joy? How satisfied are you with your life right now? Now, I once saw a Peanuts cartoon that showed Snoopy sliding along the frozen pond on his little bear paws. He's having a great time smiling, skating along the pond when Lucy walks up. You know, something's going to go down, right? And slides onto the pond with her skates on. Snoopy doing a little twirl, slides up right in front of her. And she says to him, that's not skating. That's sliding. You don't have any skates on. Skating is when you have skates on. You're not skating at all. You're just sliding. And Snoopy finally walks off with his little feet to the side and says, how could I have been so stupid? And I thought I was having fun. You know, it's a silly and simple cartoon strip, but it does have great truth. Don't let your joy and satisfaction be about someone else or even about what your life is right now. Let it be about your relationship with Christ. That doesn't change. Don't torture yourself over what you don't have. Find satisfaction in God's provision and what God has allowed into your life. Then find satisfaction in God's service and live your life for him while you can. And finally, find satisfaction in God's love and learn to love and serve others 
as he's commanded us. And remember, true satisfaction is not about having everything, but it's about having a genuine relationship with the one who controls all things, who changed our eternity from hell to heaven. And I love this verse. I'm going to end with this verse. The Bible says this, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I believe that's a great model for us to carry through. You know, true satisfaction comes in our relationship with Jesus.